Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to the next episode of Critical Care Women Leaders in the Consultant 360 podcast series. Uh, I'm just Paul Singh, your host. Uh, I wanted to introduce sort of another two rock stars, uh, Dr. Joanna Stallings and Dr. Brenda Pun. Good morning, doing well. Good, well, thank you for joining us today. Um, if you don't mind, quickly introduce yourselves and sort of the work that you're doing. I'll start with you, Joanna. Yes, Paul, thanks for having us. We're super excited to do this. Um, I'm Joanna Stallings. I'm the medical ICU pharmacist at Vanderbilt. Um, I also work in our post-ICU recovery center, and I work with the critical illness brain dysfunction survivorship group as well. And then you know this very well, but I'm like the immediate uh, co-past chair with you um, for that for SCCM's ICU liberation uh, committee. Fantastic. That's Awesome background, and obviously you're. This is right up your alley. So uh, next is Brenda Pun. Thanks again for um, having me as well. I, this is so exciting to be on here with Joanna. So I'm just glad to be doing that with her. So I, my name is, again is Brenda Pun, and I am a nurse, and I am the director of data quality with that critical illness brain dysfunction survivorship center that Joanna mentioned at Vanderbilt University. And we've been doing research around patients in the ICU for the past 20 years. And that research really focuses on those three areas. So critical illness, and a lot of that has to do with delirium and sedation in the ICU. Brain dysfunction, so again, looking at delirium in the hospital and then the long-term cognitive stuff that our patients face. And then survivorship, like how can we um, improve the best trajectory as possible? I also work with some SECM committees um, uh, as well and dabble in a lot of other little things here and there. That's fantastic. That's quite a, that's an amazing background, obviously, from both our speakers. So um, tell us a little bit about, um, you talk about this brain dysfunction center and the research that you're doing as far as, uh, give us a little bit more of a preview about sort of, the, sort of the, some of the key findings that you're discovering, especially as we, look, as our, as we wrestle with COVID-19. I don't know. I'm just going to throw it out there as an intensivist. I have a really hard time managing the pain, agitation, delirium, just as we sort of, I think we finally embedded the guidelines, finally looked at all these principles, finally thought we had things engineered. And then comes around, along comes COVID-19, and I feel like I don't know anything in the space anymore, and I'm really having a hard time managing. Tell us about your research and sort of how to help clinicians like, our, like myself and our listeners about uh, based on your research. Sure. So I'll jump in there um, first with this one. So we just wrapped up and published a paper uh, on a study called COVID-D. So think delirium, COVID and delirium. And that's the question we wanted to answer was what is delirium like in these patients? Is it different? And does it have different risk factors? And what we found in these over 2,000 patients from 14 countries, 69 different sites that worked with us around the world, is what we found was that the acute brain dysfunction is quite a bit different. And th this is from the March-April period of 2020. And so some of that could have changed by now, but what, what I hear and see, it seems that a lot of it hasn't changed so much, but we saw that patients had around 11 days of coma 
um, a median of 11 days of coma, another three days of delirium. So think of a two-week block of, this, of, of their brain being checked out either for coma or delirium. And normally in non-COVID settings, that's less than a week that we see patients between these, these two brain dysfunction states. And then when we looked at risk factors, and we looked at all the things that are traditional risk factors for, the, for delirium, but we looked at things that we thought might be unique in COVID, which were the types of sedatives that we're reusing um, and the amount and duration, as well as looking at the presence or absence of family, because for all of us, that's been a really big difference. And, um, and what we found were some of the classic risk factors, so how old you were and how sick you were, and uh, if you needed, you know, different markers for that, that severity of illness indicated you were more likely to be delirium. But, also, but the, the real take-homes were the two big modifiable risk factors were the use of benzodiazepines, which we've known that for a long time, if you use a benzo. But in this study, 64% of the patients got benzos for seven days, a meeting of seven days, which is a big change from what our practice has been. Um, in January of 2020, most of these ICs didn't use benzos for many patients, let alone for a week um, when they were using them. And so benzodiazepines were a risk factor for the development of delirium in these patients, just like they are outside of the COVID patients. And the presence of family, either in person or virtual, actually protected the patients from the development of delirium. So it reduced the risk of developing delirium. And so those are two big take-homes that, that we found from the study to apply to folks at the bedside. Like, if you have the choice, don't use the benzos. Stick with what we know works, so that A to F bundle, and choose wisely not to use the benzos. Um, and if whatever creative ways you can to get family interacting with these patients, whether that's in person, through a glass, or through a virtual interaction, uh, it matters. It, and I would say it also matters for the staff, but that's a really big, a big win with both your staff resiliency as well as your patient, um, patient outcomes. Joanna, any other thoughts from your perspective in the unit? I mean, I've been working in the COVID ICU, um, which we created uh, specifically for this 37-bed uh, unit, and then also our uh, medical ICU, which is 35 beds, which there's a number of COVID patients in like every day since this started. And so, um, I mean, I think Brenda's hit the nail on the head because, I mean, it has been really unfortunate because we've tried our best to uh, not use uh, benzodiazepines um, in these patients, but unfortunately, uh, they do require deep sedation, so we're not able to use uh, dexmedetomidine quite often, and then uh, we end up having them on propofol for a number of days, and uh, due to like super high triglycerides or even high uh, CK levels, uh, putting them at too high risk for propofol infusion syndrome, we've had to change some of these patients uh, to benzodiazepines. Um, and I mean, it's been, uh, we've all been frustrated by it, but there's just honestly not been um, another option. Uh, I think uh, that with regards to the family part that you were also highlighting, um, it was very sad, very, very, very sad uh, for not only the patients, their family members, but also the staff, honestly, uh, to not be able to uh, have the family um, 
there in person the first few months, it was extremely hard, like unspeakably hard. Um, the clinicians were spending a ton of time on the phone every day um, trying to communicate as good as they could um, with family members and to let the family members, if possible, interact with their uh, with the patients. Um, but it was uh, it was just very, very hard. And uh, um, there were multiple scenarios where uh, patients and family members had to say goodbye to each other um, via iPad. Um, there was a story that was published in the Vanderbilt Reporter where a nurse stood over the, um, stood by the bed and held a uh, iPad over the bed and um, for hours um, to let the patient and the family members say uh, goodbye. We, um, within like the last uh, um, five or six months, um, have implemented a program here um, where patients um, get to see their family members. Family members can come in um, between the hours of one and three every day and they sit outside um, the doors. And then they can use an iPad or they can use um, an iPhone or something um, to communicate with the um with the with the patient, and I think that uh, that's been tremendously helpful for everyone involved. And then with the family members being here in person, and that just makes it much easier for the for the staff to be able to to communicate about the um, the patient's current status. And for also really, um, and I'm sure this is something Jasper all could talk about too. Like uh, I think it really helps the family to see maybe if they're if the patient is really maybe needing to go go more towards palliative care to be able to see that in person versus somebody just tell you about it on the phone um, really, I think, makes a difference when people are trying to make decisions with regards to goals of care. Yeah, I mean, I think you both bring up some really incredible points. And I guess I'm as guilty as the next intensivist. I think a lot of us end up having a really struggling with, one thing we didn't talk about here was a ventilator dyssynchrony and the severity of the respiratory failure. You know, it's just, it's something that's just mind boggling. And so I'm struggling with, I don't know if, um, so step back a little bit. We had this whole movement of the ICU liberation that both of you have been leading intensely, you know, and um, and done a ton of great research. We know what works. We kind of had things down. And then you end up with this illness that just is really has some challenges. And one of the hardest ones I have is balancing the ventilator asynchrony, the respiratory failure, the prolonged, the prolonged nature of this beast. And, um, and then trying to sort of figure out, am I focusing on analgesia first, how deeply, then sedation, then what strategy, we talked about that a little bit, but talk to us a little about analgesia uh, for Joanna, and then Brenda, piggyback on the delirium a little bit from a nursing perspective, what are you seeing and experiencing, what are your nurses telling you, if you don't mind, like how to, things that are non-pharmacological that work, so Joanna, the pharmacology, the analgesia, and then Brenda, the, the non-pharmacological de delirium aspect. You know, I think one of the biggest take-home points that I always like to talk about when I'm thinking about this is people forget uh, all the neuropathic sy or symptoms that patients can have with this. And so um, in the MICU, I mean, it's not like we regularly put a lot of people on uh, gabapentin or pregabalin. And I feel like we have done more of that in these patients just because uh, to help treat their pain. Um, so that's one big thing. The acetaminophen thing has been tricky because... Uh, um, the whole, are you masking fever versus we're trying to like do multimodal analgesia and put that in the background. Um, there was some controversy at first about whether or not you could use ibuprofen um, in these patients. Um, we are still using quite a number of opiates uh, in these patients for sure. Uh, fentanyl is our go-to unless they're on ECMO and then we will use uh, hydromorphone. 
Um, and this comes into play when we talk about sedation too. I think one of the biggest challenges is because we do have so many patients, we have uh, tons of travel nurses. We have tons of nurses from every ICU in the hospital um, that maybe aren't used to using things like the CPOT. Um, the critical care pain observational tool. So I've taught numerous nurses um, how to do that, whether it be a traveler or someone who's not as used to doing that, um, just because we do have to still assess these patients to determine if they're in pain because we don't want to um, treat them, obviously, if we don't have to, because that can be deliriogenic. Um, and then the other thing, honestly, is these patients, because they are on so much opiates, um, I feel like I'm like the Bowerishman police every day, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous, but absolutely making sure these people have, I mean, they are on the most intensive Bowerishmans I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so we've definitely had to get pretty creative in that department. So it sounds corny, but that's something that we make sure we don't want to forget as well. That's very helpful. So kind of what I heard you say is sort of think about, about opioids um, liberally, potentially, especially if on, if on ECMO, for example, switch to potentially hydromorphone from fentanyl. And then I kind of heard you say, think about like the, like the neuropathic pain, the gabapentin, mm -hmm. other adjuncts that you can potentially do to minimize them. But if they're going to be on opioids, especially prolonged, think about bile regimens and be, aggressive, be vigilant about that aspect. Perfect. That's very helpful. Brenda, what do you, what do you think from the nursing perspective on the delirium piece? Well, I think I definitely want to underscore that family portion that, you know, being creative, thinking about if um, ha having a plan should your hospital go to complete restriction of all visitations to partial restriction or creative ways like Joanna explained doing with the, um, in, in the COVID positive patient rooms, having the patient right up, the family member right outside the door. I, I, I think that what we've heard from a lot of IC survivors and when they talk backwards, so, you know, our goal isn't just survival, but it is really is thriving past, past the ICU and past discharge. And when they talk about their time in the ICU, they often talk about this mixture of time where there was a lot of confusion. They may have had these dreamlike scenarios, um, but they typically will always say, but when my husband showed up, dot, dot, dot. So it, it's the, the family member becomes a, a North Star of sorts for the, for the patient. And certainly for the staff, it's a helpful North Star to connect us to this patient. But it helps to be this connector for the patient that when I saw them, I knew that some of this crazy thinking I was having wasn't really right. Or even if it was, they were on my team. These other people, I'm not sure they're on my team, but I know that my husband's on my team or my daughter's on my team. And I know that um, I'm going to be okay as long as they're here. And so, or when I see them, I, I know and I'm being reminded and that sort of brings me back to that reality filter. So whatever method of doing that creatively um, outside of our norm to get them there, to let the patient sense and see they're there in whatever way is important is really important. So I think, you know, just leveraging the creativity of critical care nurses and saying, what, what could you do? Let us get you those tools to do this. And then I think it is as much as possible to think about the things that we already know. So you might for a season need this really deep sedation, but not to make that the habit, that it's the daily questioning of how light can they be? How light can they be? Can I lighten this today? You know, that daily asking. And, you know, we do that with daily awakening trials, and there's other ways to do that. But that daily saying, is this where they need to be today? 
Is this where they need to be today? And I think that that helps to undo some of the habit forming and, and the default of getting stuck and, you know, and, and figuring out a teammate that can be the one that asks that question. It might be the bedside nurse. It might be the pharmacist that's on rounds every day, but really is that steady voice of asking, do we need this today? Is there anything, any changes that we can make in this today? And I think that that helps to get us lighter because I think it is the sedatives that are our biggest culprits right now. And the longer and the deeper they're in this sedation, uh, the more long-term effects that we're going to see from that. That's, fan- that's fascinating. That's fantastic work. So we covered a lot of ground um, in terms of like, it sounds like you also gave us some lessons about things that we're learning, things that you've learned about sort of how to manage now that we're seeing a massive surge and some of us haven't even seen our peak from the holiday season yet, you know, and so we're about to get hit again uh, with additional cases. Um, by the time this podcast is released, we're probably most of us will be in our peaks by then um, based on the current metrics. So things that, lessons that we've learned, um, um, are there other take-home points that you want to sort of bring home? I think that, you know, for many of us, it's, it's really taking a step back and making the best decisions that you can in your current environment, but not letting your current environment become the default. And so I think that that's where that, that dance of flexibility and, um, and going back to what you know is right and best for your patients. And I think in, in giving the grace, I think that comes with giving a lot of grace to our teams and ourselves that, you know, you may not be able in a third situation or in a drug shortage situation or in a really difficult patient situation, whatever might be happening to make, make the best decision in that situation. But when the situation changes, be sure to adjust your decision-making as the situation changes and give yourself that grace that, oh, I wish I don't want to treat like this, but it's my best choice right now. And I think that's where we see a lot of the, the fatigue and the burnout that's happening with our staff and just, you know, nurses not being able to have family there. To commun- I mean, just what Joanna was talking about, it's really hard for us, but it's just making sure that things don't become habit. So when given the choice, Choose what you know to be the best possible options and then adjust as your circumstance calls for you to adjust. And I think that's just really a big take home that I want to give practitioners that are at the bedside because it's a hard place to be um, and you need that grace for yourself and in your care, but you also need that accountability to say, I'm not going to make this my, my, my new norm. And, and all these new nurses were training to be sudden ICU nurses. We don't want them to think this is the norm of, you know, this is not how we're going to manage these patients every day. That's fantastic. So some grace, some flexibility, and I hear you say compassion, sort of for the whole team and for everybody around and just being there for them, especially many of the people are younger or less experienced, especially as we hit these surges. So I think that's great advice. Joanna, any particular lessons you would want to share with our audience? I mean, honestly, I think the biggest lesson I've learned more than anything is teamwork. Like one of the teams that I am on currently, it's MICU Team D. And it has, I've worked with people from ophthalmology. I've worked with ortho residents. I've worked with OBGYN residents. I've worked with general surgery residents. I mean, you name it, I um, have worked with them. And they are quite often like new interns that have just started, you know, and then they got thrown into the COVID ICU, you know? So they're not even used to exactly kind of what Brenda was saying. They're not even used to like a normal ICU experience, let alone this was, which is 
extreme, you know? Um, but I think the really cool thing I've learned about it is like everybody brings something different to the table. Like uh, we had like a dermatology resident one day who diagnosed anoxaparin induced skin necrosis, which me and my medical director didn't even know existed and had never even seen, which is crazy, you know? And so, or we had like so a- cool. I know, right? And then, like, we had an ENT resident who was on who helped the other um, COVID team that is primarily um, nurse practitioner-led. Um, it helped them, like, put in a really difficult Dobhoff tube that um, they didn't even have to get a consult that they would have gotten because they had somebody there um, to help them. So I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned for sure. Um, and then, like, I kind of already said, like, there's all these different nurses um and respiratory therapists that don't normally work there too that have came in. Um, like Brenda said, just being really patient and just not just being like, oh, well, I mean, I'll, let's just throw ICU liberation out the window because this isn't going to happen, you know, but really just taking the time and having patients to sit down with these people and to explain like, okay, this is the CPOT, this is the RAS, um, this is how you do a CAM ICU, just so that they understand that so we really can provide um, the best care for these patients. And it is a little more difficult, like when you go on rounds, just because um, people, um, if the nurse is in the room, then uh, it might be difficult to get um, a patient report, you know. Um, so still trying to, like, time it so that we can get, when we're on multidiscipline uh, rounds, uh, that we can get the best information uh, from the nurse. So we've even had creative things um, with regards to, like, uh, somebody, like, writing down all the different things we need, like, holding it up to the window, you know, like, whatever we need to do to get um, the best information, but we can't just walk by and be like, okay, I don't know what their KMICU is. Uh, I don't know what the RAS is. Like, you can't do that. Like Brenda said, absolutely every day we're talking about like, hey, what is their goal RAS? Um, what's their actual RAS? How can we make these match? Um, if they're on a paralytic, making sure that we talk about turning that off like every daggone day because we do not want people to be on that any longer than they have to be. Making sure we're checking appropriate labs with sedation and such so that um, we don't have them on uh, benzodiazepines and things if that's that's not uh, what we have to do. That's great feedback. I mean, the idea is really kind of building what Brenda was saying earlier, the idea of teamwork, but now with the clinical lens, making sure you go back to the basics and also recognizing that other team members that aren't traditionally in the ICU may have a lot to add, uh, potentially clinically, from skill sets to various ways of looking at things and doing things. But it comes at a trade-off of additional work potentially created in terms of orienting them back to the basics, but that the basics work. And that the, you know, the stuff that we've already built on, you've, you, you both helped to really build that foundation of the ICU liberation work works. The data suggests it, it, consists, it continues to suggest it. It probably will in the long COVID world as we call it. Um, uh, and then I think that's, you've set it up very nice. Then it's also a nice segue into the last part. Last question I have is a lot of leadership skills and, the, and a lot of sort of awareness of what, how to work with others and how to do things better. And I think, this podcast challenges every aspect of your personal life and personal challenges and your own leadership skills are tested. What are some of the personal challenges in this pandemic that you and others are facing both professionally and at home? And especially, you can elaborate that a little bit. And for our listeners, many of them are, are women in this series. Are there unique, unique aspects of the story that you want to share, share with others? And you can be as personal as, personal as you want. Sure. So I think for me, one of the, um, one of the hard parts with the pandemic is that my um, my children have been out of school this entire time. So virtually, they've not stepped foot in a school or an in-person classroom since last March before their spring break. 
And um, so there's always that constant need. I, I fortunately have middle schoolers, and so they have, they're able to be independent. And, um, but it has caused a big shift in my daily work schedule, my, the way that we run things, that sort of thing. And initially, when, when um, COVID was really starting to come to the United States, everything was starting to shut down. Um, I had to wrestle, my workload actually quadrupled because we were launching this big study, this international study. And what was really hard was dealing, we thankfully have an amazing team that has a weekly meeting. And, and part of that is a, how are you feeling part of, you know, each time. And one, I remember in one meeting, like, I'm just jealous. I'm so jealous of these other people who have nothing to do right now, because I have three times as much stuff to do. And it was just trying to figure out how to fit that in when there were more needs for me at home and, and get that done. So I feel, I felt like everything that I did for the first six months of COVID, whether that's a calendar or what, whatever, whatever that means, but for the first six months of COVID, it really was fitting every single minute in. And, um, and that, that was a big challenge. And, and I still wrestle with, you know, grieving the loss of all the normal, you know, eating in restaurants and going on X vacation. Then we missed this other vacation and then we did this, you know. And so it certainly came with a lot of a lot of those types of emotions on the background of a very busy schedule. That's fantastic. It's good to share with our audience. And it's a tough one. I don't have any magical solution. My wife does a lot. So she's she's been taking the brunt of those, a lot of this stuff. So I owe her a ton. Joanna, what are your what are your uh, challenges? So I'm single and I live alone. So honestly, COVID has brought me some different challenges because my personality, I'm very extroverted, you know, and honestly, I'm spending a lot more time than I normally do at work, obviously. (laughs) But uh, it's been hard because when I go home, it's like, there I am, you know, and honestly, I've never spent a lot of time at my house before. Like I'm very uh, active. I like to go run in groups and I like to travel and um, I haven't been able to do that, you know, like, um, so honestly, it's been really um, lonely um, in a lot of ways. And that's uh, been, been, been hard on me because I would have done some of these other things. Um, thankfully, I can still run with um, a friend or two, you know, but um, I would have done some of these other things that I can't do um, to help relieve some of this like stress from all the work. So I think that's been really hard. Um, I mean, the other thing too, which I honestly had never even thought about this until COVID happened, you know, like most people do not know um, that clinical pharmacists exist, you know, we're kind of like that extra like safety net out there that that nobody knows about. Like maybe I would say like 5% of the population, you know, like if you don't work in a hospital, you probably do not realize that. Like usually when I meet people, they're like, oh, you're a pharmacist. You work like at this retail store or this retail store, you know, like, um, and I don't think it's ever bothered me um before but with this like I've been working like 50 60 hours a week and I um like I said it's just been very very stressful but I feel like it's been hard for me to express that I guess to people at points because uh nobody understood exactly what my job was like the exactly what um that entailed every day because people always think about like physicians or nurses like you all being like essential workers um but they forget that there's a lot of other people um that are very important to the patient's care too um that that aren't necessarily um remembered you know and so i think that was kind of hard too was just trying to figure out how um to deal with the stress of that too Thank you for saying that, because as you're talking, I was reflecting back to when the pandemic first hit, 
and they missed our, we shut down our team-based rounds to minimize, to preserve PPE, for example. And you forget like how much everybody does, not just the physicians, the nurse, at least thank God the RTs got some love this year, you know, cause they weren't obviously getting a lot of love either. And then um, respiratory therapists, I mean, um, but then pharmacists, our pharmacists weren't around, they were on Zoom or on Skype or something of that nature on Teams. And it didn't feel like quite like we understood how to manage these folks. And now that we have, you know, multiple ECMO circuits going, I mean, I need my pharmacist there to really help me understand what am I delivering? Is it even in the system anymore? Or is it being siphoned off? I don't know a lot of these things. I don't think about this stuff, but you bring a very important point about um, the role that the team plays in and the skills that you need to balance all that. And and uh, But for one, we want to thank you for all that you do, for both of you, for all that you do, for the, for the field, for the patients, for the communities that you serve, and especially for the research. I think we're going to look forward to what coming out of Vanderbilt for the Brain Dysfunction Center because we as a society will see a whole bunch of people um, that survived COVID and there'll be some squalae, you know, and um, we want to see what you all contribute. Um, we're looking forward to understanding your articles and hopefully, and I think you're going to make a huge impact in people, whether recognize, it's recognized or not immediately. I, for one, am grateful. So I want to thank you both for being on here today. Again, I'm just Paul Singh, your host. Uh, with me today is, is Dr. Brenda Pun and Dr. Joanna Stallings from Vanderbilt University. And I want to thank you both for all the work that you do. Thank you, Jasper. Thank you for having us.